Welcome to Squeamish, the podcast that awakens your social sensibilities. Each episode, I have stimulating and organic roundtable conversations with guests about social commentary issues. Whether it's pop culture and media or social justice, I have got you covered. Today, we will be talking about sex and gaining some insight on the topic of sex education from a licensed sex therapist. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We have a very interesting episode. We're going to be talking about sex. Yes, that's right. All things sex. And I have a special guest with me. Her name is Carly Blau. She is a licensed sex therapist, and she's here today to talk about sex education, um, to raise awareness about certain topics. And we have a couple of interesting questions from various people about sex that people are interested in, you know, learning about. Um, so Carly, do you mind telling, hi, (laughs) do you mind telling everyone a bit about yourself and then like what you do? And then we'll get into the questions. Absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for thinking of me and for having me as a fellow orange woman, um, and orange person. And I'm just so excited, um, to represent, um, you know, us and, and the world of sex and relationships and dating and sex education. So I'm Carly Blau on Instagram. I am sex doc Carly. I'm a sex and relationship therapist. I specialize in women's health. I have a master's in social work. So I'm a licensed therapist. I work with individuals um, regarding all different things in mental health, anxiety and nervousness and, and depression and, and growing up and, and how to deal with growing up and what that means and, and lifestyle and career stuff. And then also like the difficulties of dating and sex. It's so complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a master's in sex education, and then I'm just finishing a PhD in clinical sex therapy to sex. This is my field. It's what I know. And I'm going to do my very best to answer your questions today. Yes. Thank you so much, Carly. We appreciate it. And and for those who don't know, Orange, she means like Syracuse University. You know, we are yes. house alumna. So very, very proud people. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, I should have clarified that, but I'm I'm a Syracuse girl through and through. I bleed orange. So I got to give it back to where it comes from. Yes. <laughs> um, so we'll start with the first question. Um, I guess we can, it, it won't be in any particular order, but you know, when do you know when you're ready to have sex? That's a great question. When do you know when you're ready to, if you're ready or when you're ready to have sex? You know, sex is something that um, a lot of people get involved in when they're not ready. Right. And it's because mm-hmm. a partner might say to you, well, we should, or I think it would be time, or I really like you. And when I re- and when people really like each other, I mean, this is what they do. I mean, I remember when I was younger, um, you know, I knew that I wasn't ready to have sex, but the person that I was dating when I was younger was like, oh, but like, this is normal. Like, this is what people do. And I was just like, mm-hmm oh, okay, like, cool, that's what people do. And like, I guess I like you, you like me, we really like each other, then I guess it's normal. But, you know, you know, when you're ready to have sex, like you should know what sex is, you should Mm -hmm. know um, how to put a condom on, you should know um, what to expect, you should and you're not going to know exactly what to expect, because you've never done it before, right? But you should know, like, okay, I know what this is. I know it it may involve some kind of penetration with my body, um, especially talking about sexual intercourse. 
And, um, you know, I, I, I need to know what that is. Right. And I need to know that I'm consenting to that action. Mm -hmm. And when you feel like, you know, all of what could come with it, and you've done some homework and you've read about it and you've asked some friends about it and, and you're like, okay, you know what, that feels like something that like, I'm ready to do when I, and I like this person and this person likes me and I feel respected by this person and I feel safe with this person. Well then, you know, and, and, and also having open communication. So if you feel like you can communicate with the person and then you're ready to explore something new, you know, maybe then you really are ready to have sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, you know, practice safe sex? Like if you know you're ready to have sex, how do you make sure that that night that you finally lose your virginity, you're doing it right? Or is there a right way to do it even? Yeah, I mean, there's no right way to have sex, right? Because sex is also a, you know, subjective term in the sense of, you know, is it going to be oral sex? It's your first time having oral sex. Um, are you in a same sex relationship? What kind of sex do you want to engage in? What kind of sex are you having for the first time? Um, but to speak about safe sex, I think, you know, it's really important to know that sexually transmitted infections can be passed along without intercourse. So like if you've given blowjobs or gotten blowjobs um, and or, you know, uh, oral sex. And um, I'm trying to think like the way that I would say to you is, you know, really getting educated of what the risks are around sex. Now, sex can be and is a really pleasurable experience. So I don't want to make it sound scary, but it's really important to know that when you engage in anything good in life, right, you also have risks. There's mm -hmm. a risk and benefit factor. And so you want to make sure that you're using a condom, using it like using protection. Um, you know, people in school sex educators, they suggest using a dental dam in working with clients. You know, I, I actually never met somebody who's used a dental dam before, even in learning about it. And a dental dam is a piece of latex that you can put over a person's genitals, particularly a vagina to stimulate the vagina, but without, um, you know, skin to skin contact mm -hmm. and um, knowing that cold sores, um, cold sores that you get on your mouth is actually herpes. And that's not if you hear that and you've gotten a cold sore, it's not to like who's ever listening. It's not to panic. It's mm -hmm. to know that if you know that you're getting a cold sore, if you get them frequently or if you feel one coming on or you're really stressed out, um, that might not be a time to engage in oral sex because yeah. it can be transmitted to your genitals. Um, both to yours through fluids or to your partner. And if you give your partner, let's say like you give your partner oral sex and then you continue on into vaginal sex or anal sex, um, that can be transmitted. So to get to the point of what is safe sex, safe sex is, you know, using protection, having mm -hmm. a conversation around, hey, have you been tested? What have you been tested for? When was the last time you were tested and have you had sex with other people since you were tested? And um, is there anything that I should know about that I'm at risk for? And um, can we please use a condom? Yeah. And, you know, I love your question of like, how do you ask a partner to put on a condom? Mm -hmm. And um, just to be clear, you had given me a couple of questions before. Yeah. And, you know, how do you ask your partner to put a condom on? It's just, hey, you know, if we're going to have sex, I need to put a condom on. And I know a lot of women um, expect that there's, there's a couple of, um, what's the word I'm looking for expectations that are really mm -hmm. not fair. And, uh, we need to nip them in the bud 
which is like the expectation that only men should carry condoms. And if mm-hmm. a woman carries a condom, she's a slut. Nope, yeah. you're not a slut. You're a badass and you're protecting yourself. And there's nothing wrong with that. And so how do you ask your partner to put on a condom? You simply say, hey, if we're going to go ahead and do this, I'm looking forward to it. Have you been tested lately? Um, is there anything that I could be at risk for? And if not, I'm really looking forward to this. Can we just quickly put on a condom? And I want to jump in and I'll say one more thing. People will say to you in listening to this, people will say to you like, oh, but I can't, I can't keep it up with one on or, um, yeah, but like I haven't slept with anybody else. I swear. Yeah. Or, you know, I was just tested. Come on. Like, don't be a buzzkill. You know, I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I'm not dirty is the word. And, you know, sexually transmitted infections don't make you dirty. They're, they're infections. Um, but they can complicate things sometimes and they can create medical issues that, that we can avoid and still engage in really pleasurable sex without engaging in that. Um, and so it's a matter of like, I'm sorry that you're experiencing that or I'm sorry that you can't keep an erection or I'm sorry that it's not as pleasurable for you without one. But unfortunately, I have to protect my body. That's the mm-hmm. line. I need to protect myself and my body. And if you respect me, you'll respect that. Yeah. And mm-hmm. It's really that simple. Yeah. But it's like some people might even argue and be like, well, it feels better without the condom. So, like, what would you say to that situation? Or, like, how do you negate that or nip that in the bud? Yeah. I would just, and it's been said to me before, like, it feels better without one. You know what? I'm sure it does. But that's not my problem. Hmm. You know, and I'm, I'm a tough cookie. I mean, if any of you see me on Instagram, if anyone knows me as a client um, and as a friend and anybody that knows me and my reputation, like I'm tough in the sense of, you know, I call it like it is. And I know that that takes a lot of self-love and confidence to develop. Mm-hmm. And I definitely didn't have that level of confidence when I was much younger. That's something I've grown into and grown to develop and, and appreciate and respect about myself. But, you know, if someone says to you, well, oh, I can't keep an erection without a condom or, oh my God, it would feel so much better without one though. You know what? You're entitled to your needs and Mm -hmm. you're entitled to your safety. And that's not up to anybody else. And and let me tell you this, if someone's going to go ahead and get pissed off at you because you won't have sex without a condom, well, you probably, back to your question of how do you know when you're ready to have sex, you probably shouldn't be having sex with that person. Because having sex with someone means that there's respect and there is safety. And that could be a one night stand or someone you're making love to for years, but there needs to be respect and safety. And if you don't feel that exists, well, then you might want to reconsider what you're engaging in. Yeah, definitely. Wow. That's, that sums it up. It does. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So a lot of like, what is the average age of, um, people having sex like at what age do most people lose their virginity that's a great question I think it depends um I think it really depends it depends on demographics it depends on a lot of different things I would say that the average age is around 16 17 years old um I could fact check that but my gut says that that's around the correct age is 16 17 years old um even 18, maybe, you know, it's interesting. If any of you have watched the social dilemma on Netflix, there has been a lot of discussion and talk about how the internet and social media and how TikTok and all these social platforms and 
artificial intelligence platforms have now made it more difficult for people to get intimately close and connect to someone. You mm. can connect so quickly over the phone or, or over an app, um, over texting, that it almost makes it more difficult to engage in person. I think the age of first sexual experience, I, I would call it first sexual experience instead of virginity, but um, that's just a sex educator in me. Mm -hmm. But the age of someone's first sexual experience, I think, is now rising because mm -hmm. we're, we're teaching our youth and we're giving them the education that they need um, to be mm -hmm. able to say, no, I'm not ready um, to be able to understand what it, it comes with. But also because social media is is really leading young adults, teenagers um, and young teens into less of a world of physical interaction, but more. Uh, behind a screen. And so it's kind of pushing off the age because the connection is taking longer to achieve. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. We're so connected, but not really. Um, well, we no. think we're so connected, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what is the, well, we just spoke about that, the misconception about sex and youth. Yeah. Um, how I do you know what? I can speak to that though. The misconception yeah. about sex and youth. I'd love to speak to that for a sec. Sure. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I remember when I had my first sexual experience, I remember talking to someone about it. And, and I remember when my mom found out she was furious with me. Mm -hmm. um, and I have a really loving and supportive mom. And I grew up with my mom. Uh, my parents were divorced. And um, but she was really mad. She was like, you're, you know, you're 14 years old. Like, what are you doing at this age? Like, I didn't raise you that way. I taught you to wait longer. You know, and and she meant it as a mom, like now me being a mom, I can totally understand wanting my daughter. I look at 14 year olds and I'm like, wow, like I can't even imagine being 14 mm -hmm. years old and, ex and and, you know, experiencing something so vulnerable um, at that age. But that's the misconception, like just because someone's young doesn't mean they're not able to engage in something. Right. Like, granted, someone who's 14 years old does not have is not the age of consent. Right. They're not 18 years old. Yeah. Um, but there are plenty of people who are engaging in sex and, and, and it's consensual. Like they want to engage in it. They they get educated. I was the most educated. If any of you have watched sex education on no. Netflix, I'm you like Otis. Oh, my I God. Was, yes. I am Otis. I always was Otis. I studied sex education textbooks in my friends' parents' libraries when they uh, we would find it and I would study it. And I knew everything from an educator standpoint, um, mm -hmm. not from having a sibling or a friend teach me from a textbook. So it's like, you know, the misconception about sex and youth is that youth, that younger individuals can't feel pleasure. Um, that they don't know what pleasure is, that they don't know what love is. They're too young to understand. Um, you know, they're too young to feel like sex is pleasurable. The reality is sex is something you'll come into as you get older. You'll develop, you'll practice, you'll learn more about your body and you learn more about, you know, having partners um, and what sex can bring to your life. But that doesn't mean that someone who is, you know, a teenager, like 17, 18, I definitely wouldn't recommend 14 years old being the first time having sex. I think that that's young and I still had so much to learn about myself, but there's no shame in it if you were one of those people, because it's a matter of being open and being safe and being mindful and learning that like, you don't then have to continue sleeping with people. You know what I mean? You can, yeah. you can wait until you feel safe again. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so when, you know, you spoke about your mom being upset and everything, when did your mom talk to you about sex or like when should parents talk to their kids about sex and how should they, you know, bring up the conversation? Yeah. So it's funny you ask that. Like my mom had talked to me about it and she had given me a textbook um, for kids to teach me about everything. So I learned about it and I think she gave me the book at 12. So I was in sixth grade and I began to read about it. Um, so it really prepared me, but I think emotionally speaking, um, and physiologically, like with my actual physical body, I wasn't ready to engage. I think, you know, emotionally I thought I was, but Mm -hmm. where I was physically, I don't know if I was at that age. Now I can speak to when parents, should speak to their kids about sex. Listen, sex is something that if we normalize the conversation, it's like anything else. It becomes less desired in a um, rebellious way, right? So like if, if, if I want to be really mindful with what I say, but it's like, you know, in Europe, in Europe, drinking alcohol is a normal thing um, for a family to do at dinner having a glass of wine and a parent might say like, yes, you can try it. You know, they're not going to encourage that younger children are drinking, but they may encourage them to like, oh yeah, you could try a sip. Sure. Or you can taste dad's beer or mom's beer, right? Like that Mm -hmm. exists. And then the age, the, the behavior of drinking in Europe is far less aggressive and reckless than it is here in the States. Why? Some research says that it's because they normalize it. It's acceptable. They're allowed. They don't feel like they're rebelling doing it. Whereas here in America, it's a bit different. So it's the same thing, I think, for sex. You know, if you normalize it, like if kids walk in on their parents having sex, telling them like freaking out or being like, oh, we weren't doing anything. Well, yeah, you were. And they're not stupid. They know what was going on. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of like, you know, I say start talking to your kids about sex from a biological standpoint and say as little as you need to answer their questions. Right. Mm -hmm. But also giving them like valid information. You don't give a four year old who asks where do babies come from a whole biology lesson on intercourse. But you might tell Mm -hmm. them that like when, you know, a mommy and a daddy or when two people love each other, sometimes they, you know, they can make a baby. And it can be so simple. And as the child gets older and develops more intellect and more understanding, you can provide more information because kids will be curious. I mean, I was I was reading a textbook. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of times that's how kids will go online and type in sex or porn. And then that's a whole nother thing. Um, So how do you think that um, how should schools um, how can schools reform sex education like, and how can they talk about it in classes? Because for me, growing up in the city, New York City, um, inner city schools didn't, we didn't have sex ed. We didn't talk about that. It was very like taboo. So like, how can we incorporate that into like more um, classes and make it yeah. not like such a, um, I guess, what's the word? Such a topic that's like, like um, frowned upon a taboo topic yes 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 yeah you know um it's amazing but it's it's unbelievable to me I mean you know we all wouldn't be sitting here wherever we are listening to this podcast if somebody somewhere at some point was having wasn't having sex at some point Mm -hmm. and I joke in somebody who studies in in vitro fertilization and infertility treatment um 
almost every single person who went through infertility treatment who had a baby through a petri dish tried to have sex a bunch of times first i can guarantee you that um but you know the thing is is we all wouldn't be here listening to this if somebody wasn't having sex at some point in time everyone like sex is something that a lot of people enjoy doing and schools can reform sex education by by providing sex education even basic sex education on what is sex what is sexual activity um what how do you have safe sex how can you get tested where do you have access to condoms um you know what are birth control options where can you have access to birth control options why do we need birth control um what are the different forms of birth control and really being practical right being practical we also have to deal with the fact that a lot of schools this is this is the social worker in me but a lot of school systems don't have the finances to be able to afford proper sex mm-hmm. education programming yeah. right so that's mm-hmm. part of the issue but even if we were just providing basic education on protection safety and consent i think yeah. that our schools would be doing a, severe like serious justice for our kids and our youth and and us um you know i really hope that my daughter someday when she goes to school gets a comprehensive sex education class but i know that if she doesn't she'll have one at home yeah <laughs> exactly and i think that would also help in terms of like going to college and like the number of rapes that happen on college campuses mm-hmm. might be lowered because of that um so the next question i have for you is um which organizations can be a part of the narrative of schools teaching about sex and just helping the youth understand this time, like this part of life? That's a great question. Um, and I actually, what I'd like to do is I'd like to do some more homework and get you some answers for that to provide to your listeners um, so that you have some resources, if that's an option. I think that Planned Parenthood um, Planned Parenthood has a terrible reputation of just being a place where people go for abortions, mm-hmm. even though, you know, th- that's a sticky subject in itself. But, you know, a woman should have a right to choose. Maybe this is my belief, but, you know, a woman should have a right to choose what she wants to do with her body. And if Planned Parenthood has the access to provide women an opportunity to do so, that's one thing that they do. But that is not all that Planned Parenthood does. Planned Parenthood provides birth control. They provide education. They provide sex education. They provide support and mental health support where needed in certain uh, specific situations. They provide, um, you know, medical exams and pap smears to test for cervical cancer and sexually transmitted infections. I mean, the the wealth of knowledge that Planned Parenthood has to offer um, should definitely be part of a narrative of, of sex education. It shouldn't be as shunned as it is. It should be an organization that we welcome with open arms because they mm-hmm. really have great intentions, um, you know, regardless of where you stand on. Uh, yeah. Or but, even how uh, they started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, um, there are some other organizations online that are reputable and known for part for sex education. Um, and I will provide you with a couple more of them to be specific, maybe some some websites and stuff like that. So I'll give that to you for for your for your listeners. Yeah, I will, I will definitely put it in the in the bio so that people will know. Um, OK, so. How can media teach about sex? We, you mentioned earlier about sex education and the show on Netflix, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, how else, like, are there any other shows apart from sex education um, that are doing this, this work? And also like, what else can media do to like in, influence the next generation, especially through TikTok or whatever? Yeah. So I think sex education, the TV show, if you haven't watched it, it is an amazing TV show. It taught me an immense amount of stuff, um, especially about the youth of today's world. I mean, I'm in my 30s, so it's definitely been some time since I was a teen, but it really taught me a little bit more about what teens are doing and seeing and how they're behaving these days. And also recognizing, most importantly, the media is merely a blip of reality. It Mm -hmm. is not a whole reality. What you see in TV shows, what you see in porn What you see in music videos, what you see on any screen is merely a tiny, tiny section of what a reality would look like. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, when you finish having sex with somebody, let's say it was vaginal penile penetrative sex. okay, and there's a condom used in every movie, in every TV show, you see it being hot and passionate or rough and sexy and whatever, all these things. Right. You never see, or even if there's like, you know, trigger warning, but like, even if there's like a rape portrayed in a show or a TV show, it very rarely ever walks through the entire narrative around what goes on with that. The Mm -hmm. emotional trauma, the physical trauma, the dealing with a perpetrator, like these things are not looked at in the media. And so, and it's very hard. Like I get, you know, I, I come from a master's in sex education, but also a master's in television, radio and film. And I have a lot of empathy for the media world because it's also very difficult to do that from an editorial standpoint to provide a whole story, right? Because otherwise each movie would have to have like a good 25 minutes focused on a specific scene. But the media could teach more about how, like if there's, like I was saying, vaginal penile penetrative sex and a condom Mm -hmm. is used and the condom gets lost. What is the conversation around that? What goes on around that? Right? Like what Mm -hmm. it it can teach more realistic expectations. And I think that's where the TV show sex education, while it does have it, have its faults, don't get me wrong. It does a beautiful job of teaching the most realistic narrative. I think around sex that I've seen in a Mm -hmm. really long time. Um, to go back to what you were saying about like what's real and not real, sometimes there's pressure to think that pornography is like real sex. Is pornography like real? Like, is that really what happens? So listen, pornography it, it is two people having sex, which you're watching or two people, three people, however many people engaging in some kind of sexual activity. Yes, that's real what you're watching. However, it's manipulated, right? So there's somebody behind the scenes being like, put it in here, go a little bit deeper, move faster. I want you to yell more. I want you to moan more. I want her to wear this. I want him to wear this. I want you to look like this. I want you to kiss them there. Like it's all created for the sense of monetary value, which is Mm -hmm. either that people are paying for the pornography or they're paying for the media clicks. So for every time you click on a new porn site because like oh you watch this ad that doesn't do it for me and then you click to the next one you're like nah, i don't really like that one or this one i don't like this person i'm not attracted to that person and so you keep clicking each time you click they get more money from ad sales Mm -hmm. so you know it's all made for the for the sake of being monetarily beneficial it's it's all real 
but it's also setting very false expectations of what it's going to be like for you in the bedroom. Yeah. Because you're not going to be porn stars. I mean, maybe you are. And if you are, all the power to you. Be safe, be smart, enjoy yourself, and make sure that that's really what you want to do. No shame. But if, you know, that's not, then don't hold yourself the expectation. I mean, somebody doesn't go into, you know, a doctor's office and tell a doctor what to do. You wouldn't expect that you'd have a medical degree if you don't have one. Think about it the same way. A porn star does porn for a living. Yeah, exactly. Um. So we're since we're along the lines of um, porn pornography, um, at, like, is it normal for people to be interested in fetishes? And at what age does that start? Great question. So, you know, of course, it's normal to be interested in fetishes. Um, fetishes are merely something that you're like super interested about insects that like really tickles your fancy in a peculiar way. Um, and the age really can vary. I mean, some people start their fetishes at young ages. Some people start their fetishes as they get older and they develop more knowledge about their body and what they're involved in and what they're invested in and what turns them on. You know, that's the difference between having sex younger. And then as you continue to have sex into your more adult years, you learn about your body. You learn about what turns you on. You learn about what is pleasurable to you. And as you learn more about that, maybe you learn you have a fetish. So there's no specific age that it starts. It's really a matter of like, what impact does something have in your world? And then giving it life. So you might have a fetish for feet or maybe a fetish for, you know, eating while having sex or um, there are a lot of different fetishes and there's nothing wrong with them. So what is the difference between a fetish and a preference? That's a really great, great, great question. Um, So a preference, I would say to you, is something that you'd prefer, whereas a fetish might be something a little bit more on the lines of not an obsession, but something that perhaps like you really want to engage in. And that really is connected to a level of pleasure and intimacy for you. Um, perhaps like your intimacy is dependent on this specific thing, whereas a preference, there's no dependence. So um, how do you deal with finding out that your sexual partner has been using you to fulfill a fetish? Or let's say like, especially within the black community, there's like some people will only date certain people or just in any community. They'll be like, I only want to date um, a white girl because they give good head or something like that. How do you deal with sure. you know, find out that your partner is just using you or, you know, for sexual gain? Um, even for black men, there's like the stereotype of having a bigger penis. Yeah. Okay. Then how do you know, like, how do you deal with that? Like, there's obviously some, like, you might feel embarrassed by that or feel used. How do you deal with that? Sure. Or like the, you know, the misunderstanding and the, the, um, what you said the word and I'm blanking on it, but you know, the expectation or like the false expectation or the reputation, you know what I mean? All these things. Yeah. The stereotype. Yeah. Stereotype of, um, you know, that, that a person of color might have a bigger penis than somebody who identifies as white. Um, or, you know, that white girls give good head. Um, Mm. all these stereotypes exist. They're all, you know, that's why there are stereotypes there. There's, there's a falsity to it. Right. And, um, 
it takes away our, our, our ability to be a human. Um, and it's, it's pressuring. And so if you feel like you're being used to fulfill anything for a partner, process that with a professional, with a friend, with a therapist, um, you, you are, you are worth, you are worth so much more as a human being in this world than to be used for any person's sexual gain. And it is never acceptable to be used to fulfill something unless you are consenting to it, right? If it's Mm -hmm. been spelled out, major misconception here around fetishes and BDSM, okay? Um, Fetishes and BDSM, you know, can go hand in hand, not always. But if somebody, um, if somebody is using you to fulfill a fetish and they weren't transparent with you from the get-go, and they didn't tell you that from the beginning, then you have a right to tell them that you don't feel safe. Yeah. And feel respected as a human being. And unless you are consenting to engaging in whatever their fetish is, then, then you don't need to be engaging with them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that it's really a matter of like, regardless of how you identify your ethnicity, your race, your religion, your gender, your sexual orientation, however you see yourself in the world, you deserve respect and safety. That's, that is something that is across the board that does not discriminate. And, and we deserve that. I agree. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, I'm like, just, wow. Yes. Um, so yes. how do you help your parents to understand that, like, especially mother daughter relationships to understand that, um, as women, we can, it's okay to date around like girls should be, should be able to date around and have casual sex. Um, and just get, you know, them, your parents out of the stuck out of the traditional mindset of like, you know, girls are supposed to be more reserved and you know, boys will be boys kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there's something to be said here about boundaries. You know, a lot of moms, including me, I mean, my daughter's not that old yet, but you know, my mom growing up always said to me, like, I'm your mom. I'm not your friend. I'll be someone you can come to. I'll be here for you. But there are certain details I just don't need to know. And I, and mm-hmm. you know what? I respect that because and I know that I'm saying, I know that that's a little sticky and, and it, there, it's, it's very um, loaded of a, of a statement for me to make. But mm-hmm. I think that like, you know, A, the old traditional mindset of like, you should only sleep with one person or you should not sleep with many people because if you sleep with many people, then you're a slut and then a man's not going to want you. And that's the assumption that you're going to be in a heterosexual relationship and that you're going to get married and that you're going to have children. I mean, these are all assumptions and generalized, you know, expectations based on our pasts in this world. Mm -hmm. The world is going into such a different, beautiful place where those expectations kind of have no home anymore. And, you know, how can you get your mom to understand that it's okay for girls to date around? Enjoy dating, get educated on having safe sex and enjoyable sex. And maybe mom doesn't need to know about your casual sex. Maybe yeah. mom, maybe, that, maybe mom doesn't need to know 
who you're sleeping with or how you're sleeping with them, but rather maybe mom can provide you with safe sex education. Or if your feelings are hurt, she can provide you with a safe space to go to talk about your feelings. But it's kind of like, you know, as a parent, I wouldn't want my daughter in the bedroom and we wouldn't want to want to be in the bedroom with our parents either. Right. So there's, Mm -hmm. that's where I, that's what I mean about there are certain things that are details that, you know, if something goes on and you need someone to turn to, sure, it would be really nice to be able to have your mom. Like, I hope someday my daughter can say to me, mommy, I had sex with someone and my vagina is burning and it itches and, you know, whatever. And, and I can speak to her about that. And I really do hope that those open narratives exist. But there's a difference between that open narrative, I think. And like, if you're having a one night stand or engaging, telling mom all that stuff, there's still mm. a mother daughter relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's still boundaries. Yeah. yeah. And I hope that's fair for me to say. I think that's a very realistic answer yeah. um, for me to give. You know, I think that there are some very open minded individuals who would say, like, no, if my daughter's having sex with numerous guys, like I would want to know. And, you know, if my daughter I can speak to you from a personal perspective, if my daughter said, you know, I was having casual sex and dating around, I would say, that's great, honey. Like, make sure that you engage in safe sex, right? Keep condoms in your bag. Um, and if you have questions, let me know. But I certainly don't need to know who she's sleeping with and when she's having sex in every moment because she's entitled to her privacy. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, I think there's a fine line, but also a boundary of letting someone be an individual. Exactly. I think that's kind of, and yeah, empowering sorry. them. Sorry. I didn't mean yeah. to interrupt. You. I think that that's the main piece is like, we don't want to control. We want to empower. Right. So yeah. it's not a matter of like controlling and telling my daughter or telling a daughter that you can't sleep with numerous guys or what are you doing? It's like giving your child the correct information so that they can engage in whatever they want to do because they're going to do it anyway. Exactly. But providing them with the information they need to make informed, safe consensual choices so that they're safe in their decisions. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in terms of like, you know, being empowered, how do you, how do men and women practice safe sex while having multiple partners? Like, you know, some people, it's a hookup kind of world now, of Tinder and all these mm-hmm. apps. So how do you, you know, maneuver through those apps safely? That's a great question. And it's a bit sticky. Um, I would say that getting tested, you know, if you're having numerous sexual partners, asking the question, can I see, have you gotten tested? How many people, here's the thing. If you, it's kind of, it's crazy that we're having this conversation during the time of COVID, but it's like, Mm. if you have sex with someone today and then you have sex with a new person tomorrow, and then you get tested on, let's say today is, we'll pretend right today is Monday. You have sex with somebody on a Monday. Then you have sex with a new person on Tuesday. And then you have, and then you get tested on Wednesday. Okay. Anything that was transmitted through either of those prior sexual experiences may not show up on a test because Mm -hmm. there is a typical two week incubation period for most sexual transmitted infections. And there's also up to six weeks for herpes and HIV and sometimes Mm -hmm. three months. It's very complicated. So it's a matter of if you are having consistent casual sex with numerous partners, I would say get tested every three months. Go and get a full panel. Here's the other thing to know. When you go and get tested for sexually transmitted infections, you need to ask for a full panel, meaning 
I want to be tested for everything, including all the sexually transmitted infections, including HIV and herpes. Know that unless you are having an outbreak, you may not show up positive for a herpes infection. So yeah. oftentimes somebody will be like, well, you know, it didn't, it came back negative, but then maybe they had an outbreak a couple of weeks later and they, it, why didn't it come back positive? Well, because sometimes it takes for, you know, the outbreak to occur for the viral load to be present and for that to present in a test. And it's really important that if you ever see a rash on your genitals anywhere, that's when you should go to a doctor's office and get tested because they'll swab the sore and be able to tell you exactly what it is that you're dealing with. Um, and when having numerous partners, don't be afraid to ask someone when was the last time they got tested and how many people have they slept with in the in-between. Also, like, use a condom. Use a condom. Mm -hmm. Tell people all the time, inspect your genitals. Look at what your body looks like. Know your penis. Know your testicles. Know your vulva. Know your labia. Okay? Know the vaginal canal. Get in front of a mirror. Know what your parts look like normally. What they smell like normally right? What, what mm -hmm. your norm is. Get used to that so that when something shifts or changes or smells different or looks different and you notice something, well, you know your body best and you're responsible for taking care of your body. No one else. So, you know, making sure that you're getting tested regularly, making sure you're asking partners about their sexual activity. If they've had numerous partners since the last time they got tested, or there hasn't been two weeks of an incubation period since the last time they were tested, um, you know, you may want to wait it out a little bit. And maybe you ask a partner like, hey, can we wait two weeks from the last time that we slept with somebody else and get tested? Now I understand. I was young and in college once too, and single in New York City as well. These aren't very easy things to ask. Yeah. Because in the moment, you might really want to just engage. And the thing is, is ask the questions. Is there anything that I need to be wary of? Is there anything that I could potentially get from, like anything that I could potentially contract from having sex together? I want to know what my risks are, right? And um, can we please use a condom? Because I'd like to have the safest sex possible. And somebody, I mean, many people don't tell the truth, unfortunately, and believe that if they're not having an outbreak or if, um, you know, if, if an infection isn't present to their knowledge that they find that they're quote unquote clean, they're not clean or dirty. That's terrible terms. It's mm -hmm. just they may not have an infection in that moment or they may think that they don't. Um, no one's dirty. Yeah. Um, you know, we're just sexually active. And sometimes I say that you get a cold down below the belly button. And sometimes it's something, and I say that jokingly, but it's, it's not actually a cold, everyone. I mean, a sexually transmitted infection, but you can, mm -hmm. a lot of them can be treated or managed. Um, almost everything, almost every sexual transmitted infection, sexually transmitted infection can be treated and managed accordingly. It's just a matter of having really open and clear communication and using protection wherever possible to have safe and fun casual sex. Yeah. Thank you. This is, <laughs> you're definitely answering a lot of serious questions. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, where, you know, some people might just want to date and form meaningful relationships, how do you um, do that, you know, without experiencing sexual attraction or like engage, like doing having sex? You mean like um, 
I know one of your questions was like, you know, about being asexual. Yeah, that that is a thing that that is that's one of the questions. But I mean, like how to go about dating and forming meaningful relationships. Well, not easy. So here's the thing. Sex is a part of dating if you want it to be, but it's not a contingency factor. Like I always tell people your first three dates with someone should not be loaded with alcohol. They should not be where you're getting hammered. They should be an opportunity for you to really get to know somebody, you know, get to know someone, see if you like them. What do you like about them? Do they like you? Are they respectful of you? Do they enjoy you? Do you feel safe? Do you feel heard? Do you feel like they appreciate your presence? If the answer is yes to all those things, then go ahead and, you know, as you continue dating them, make a conscious choice and decision to engage in sexual activity because that's a part of many relationships. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have to be contingent on it. Like you don't have to put out and have sex for somebody to like you. Yeah. It's so much more than that. Yeah. I think we're fed that, but it's definitely more than that. A hundred percent. I mean, I tell my clients all the time, like your first date, you know, I always tell people to drink minimum for people who are obviously of the age of drinking. Um, you know, and like, if you're going out or you're going to a party and you're meeting somebody, um, you know, if, if you're feeling like you're constantly getting smashed and, and drunk and you're not present um, in getting to know somebody, like be mindful that your consent factor like diminishes the more and more in, um, you ingest. Mm-hmm. So you want to be really careful about that, right? Because we need to protect ourselves. Yeah. Um, so we thought we did mention about asexuality. So what is asexuality? Like, what does it mean to be asexual? So asexuality is essentially, um, it's, it's a sexual orientation in which a person has, um, an, they may have an attraction, but the attraction isn't sexual. So they may like somebody, they may be attracted to somebody, they may feel connected to somebody, they may have, um, you know, they may be able to form, you know, romantic relationships with somebody, but they're lacking a sexual manner, a sexual connection, a sexual desire, a sexual arousal by and for someone else. Um, is it like how many people are usually like what is the statistics of like people who are asexual? Because some people are like, I've never heard of that. Um, is it common to be asexual? One second. I'm I'm actually going to look up the statistics as we're speaking because I didn't have that on hand. But according to patterns of asexuality in the United States, um, approximately one percent of oh hold on okay we find that sorry according to patterns of asexuality in the United States, five percent of females and more than six percent of males report that they have never had sex in their lifetime. Respect to sexual attraction, almost 1% of both females and males are not sure about their sexual attraction. It's Asexuality is a bit difficult to define. It's also defined differently depending on how somebody feels that they identify with it. 
Um, so it's kind of hard. I think, you know, one of the things that I can tell you about being a sexuality researcher and a PhD student is that sexuality and sex are subjective terms, right? They can be defined very differently based on um, somebody's experience, somebody's knowledge, somebody's demographic, all these different things. People may define sex in different ways. Somebody might be like, oh, if you're talking about sex, it means you know, penile vaginal penetration, whereas for them, it might mean anal sex, it might mean oral sex, it might mean um, many different things. So sex is a very subjective term, or regular sex is a subjective term, right? Because the term regular is subjective. Um, And I think that it's difficult when you're looking at statistics, and you're looking at research around sex because we're now getting into a more sexually liberated environment where we're doing more sex research but there's still a lot more that needs to be done yeah how do you go about as a person exploring your sexuality like figuring out what you like and what you don't like yeah that's a great question i think that it's a matter of just like tapping into what your desires are a lot of people have desires and fat and and fantasies and um, are interested in things in their mind when masturbating, watching pornography, but also might feel differently when they're with a partner. And when you're exploring your sexuality, allowing yourself to really tap into like, wow, I never realized maybe I am attracted to someone or maybe I am attracted to a certain kind of behavior or something Um, and letting yourself tap into that and seeing if that's something that you enjoy and it brings you pleasure and it's something that you're doing consensually, really you're entitled you're entitled to that exploration and and finding a safe space and a safe person to explore that with both a person to engage in that sexual activity with, but also somebody to talk to about it that can guide you. Mm-hmm. Since we're on the, the path of like pleasure and, and exploring, um, how can people be more confident and better? Like how can you, can one be a better Um, communicator in bed and be more confident with themselves when they're having sex? Great question. People can become more confident and get better at at sex by knowing what you want in your body. What makes you feel pleasure? What is pleasurable? What do you like? What do you not like? What feels safe? What does not feel safe? What are your triggers? What are your safe zones? What is not a safe zone? Um, How do you like your body to be touched? Do you know how to touch your body the way that you like? And really developing a communication and, and, and the verbal ability to be able to express that to somebody else. You know, first and foremost, learning, there's a great website called omgyes.com. Like, oh my God, but omgyes.com for women. It's an amazing resource on learning how to masturbate and how to master touching your vulva and your clitoris to be able to utilize, like, what are the different ways that masturbation can occur for a female and how can you enjoy it? Because, you know, a lot of young boys are taught how to masturbate either from an older brother or from dad or from a movie or from pornography, but girls are often never taught to masturbate or that it's normal. And Mm -hmm. OMG, yes, really taught people and teaches people and teaches women how to do it, which is amazing. And to be more confident, I think it's really a matter of just like learning what you want and not being afraid to ask for it. If you know your self-worth and you know your value, you'll know that in engaging with someone, you're entitled to ask for what you want. What would, how do you, how would that question go? Like, how do you ask someone? Like, or tell someone, uh, I want you to do this. 
So like, yeah, I think it's as simple as like, if somebody were to, if two people were engaging in, in hooking up, right. And they're kissing, they might, it could be as simple as like, Hey, I really like when you, um, I'll give you actual words. Like, I like when you kiss me more softly and when you use a little bit less tongue. I like when you kiss my neck. I like when you pull my hair, but I like when you pull my hair by putting your hand behind my head and holding on closer to like my scalp instead of pulling my hair. Cause when you pull just my hair, it hurts me. Or I like, right. You can say something like, you know, I like when somebody grabs my testicles um, or I like when someone plays with my balls. Um, right. Because many times in the bedroom, somebody might not use the word testicles um, <laughs> because they're not in a doctor's office. But you might say something like, hey, I really could you touch my balls? I really like when when someone plays with my balls while we're hooking up or, um, you know, like um, get, getting comfortable with talking about sex, talking about your genitals, talking about your vulva, talking about your penis and your testicles and your balls, talking about your vagina, talking about um you know, all your different body parts, your mouth, the way you kiss, the way you touch, getting comfortable talking about that is part mm-hmm. of the confidence. Yeah, that is, that is part of the confidence. Um, so, yeah. and it's hard uh, and it's mm-hmm. total credit. It's really hard to do this, but it gets easier the more you do it. And I think yeah. that that's where sex becomes sometimes more pleasurable as someone gets older because they have more years of practice yeah. of communicating if they've yeah. been doing it, you know, for mm-hmm. a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just good to just start and just be like, Hey, just try asking the question. Right. Like, Hey, can you kiss me like this instead? Or can you touch me like that? Or, Hey, you know what? Let me, why don't you do this? I actually know what my clitoris likes and what would, what I would need to orgasm. Can I, can I take your hand for a second? Can I show you? Yeah. Like if, if you're in this together and you're wanting dual pleasure, why wouldn't somebody be open to learning? Yeah. Um, so what is the easiest or best way? I don't know if you can answer this for most women to reach an orgasm or how to achieve a full body um, orgasm in comparison to a genital orgasm. I wish if I had the answer to that, I would be a bazillionaire. <laughs> I really would, but I don't. I, you know, the easiest way is to really learn what is it that your body needs to have an orgasm. Um, or, you know, do, does your vagina, does your vulva, does your clitoris, is it sensitive in certain places? What kind of stimulation does it need? Um, can you re- reach an orgasm through clitoral stimulation from your hand? Do you need fingering on top of clitoral stimulation? Do you need perhaps a sex toy? Do you like having sex? And that's how you have, um, with penetration. Is that how you engage in orgasms? Really learning about your body is the easiest way to reach an orgasm. If you don't know anything about your body and you don't know what it takes to orgasm on your own, it's going to be really difficult to know how to do that with a partner. Yeah. Masturbation is key, I guess. Yes. <laughs> um, you spoke about sex toys just now. Are there any gender inclusive sex toys out there? Are there any gender inclusive sex toys? I'm sure there are. Um, there are a lot of really great sex toy shops online there's babeland which is awesome um there's you know uh jimmy jane and lilo are two wonderful brands i know they're a little bit pricey but they're made really really well and lilo has a partner picobong um you know i think it's lilo's partner picobong but they they have great products as well um and there are a lot of you know neutral sex toys that can be utilized regardless of how you identify 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, sex and pleasure, how do you communicate with your partner um, to slow down when it seems like things are rushing, whether whether it's in a relationship or in sex, if you're not enjoying yourself or they're making you feel uncomfortable? Um, how do you tell that your partner that without, you know, sparking some like anger or something like that? Yeah. So, you know, I think the first and foremost thing that I want to say is to this piece is, you know, if somebody reacts with anger or frustration, that's their problem. That's not on you. Yeah. You are not making them angry by you needing to slow down or needing respect and reading, needing time. That's on them. That's for them to process. Um, you have a right to need things to slow down. You can say to someone, hey, you know, I, I really like you and I think things are great, but I, I think I'd like to take things a little bit slower. And if they're like, well, what do you mean? Why? Like, how have I been rushing you? Right. And they get like kind of snarky. Uh, that would be a yellow flag. Where yeah. I would say step back and say, you know, um, I, this is not about you. This is about me. I just want to take things a little bit slower. And if we can respect each other and just respect my feelings, I would really appreciate that. And if somebody can't respect that and they can't get over themselves to, to see and hear where you're coming from, that's something to think about, right? Because like you shouldn't feel pressured or rushed into anything, especially not sexual. Yeah, definitely. Um, so when it comes to like STDs and like, let's say your partner gives you an STD or you get one from randomly having sex. Um, What do you do if you have one? I know some people are like, you have to tell the people you've had sex with, but like, what do you do? What does that process look like? Sure. So if you, so first and foremost, 80% of people who have a sexually transmitted infection will not have symptoms. I'll repeat that. 80% of people who have a sexually transmitted infection will not have symptoms, which is why it's so important that if you're having consistent casual sex with numerous people, that you're getting consistently tested and you're using the proper forms of protection to make sure that if you are engaging with someone and if there is a sexually transmitted infection present, that you're either not getting it or you're not passing it along. Now, there are times when it happens. Chlamydia has a tendency to run rampant on college campuses. It's contagious. Um, you know, a lot, 75% of women will get HPV at some point in their lifetime, one of the two forms and the many different strains. Um, and when I say two forms, like the cancer causing or genital warts causing, but there are many different strains of HPV. If you get a sexually transmitted infection, first and foremost, if you sense anything off with your genitals, if you see anything different, if you smell anything different, if anything is itching profusely or burning, a fishy odor, a smell, a really dry feeling um, to the point where you're like itching and super uncomfortable. If it burns to urinate, whether you have a penis or a vagina and it really burns to urinate, that's something to be mindful of. Um, And to go to a doctor, don't be ashamed to go to a medical provider, right? I know that there are a lot of medical doctors that are not ethical or, or morally right in the way that they react. And I wish that I could be a fly on the wall for every time that there's a roll die or a comment about like how many people, well, how many people have you slept with? Right. Cause doctors mm-hmm. are very, are not very informed in this case, unfortunately, some are and all the power to those that are, but there are a lot of doctors that aren't. And, but still 
don't be afraid to go and get medical help and support and ask someone like, hey, my vagina feels off or my penis feels off or my balls feel off. Can you please take a look? Something feels like it's up, right? And I just need someone to tell me what's going on here. I'd like to get a test done. Mm -hmm. To know when you get a full panel of sexually transmitted infections, um, they'll usually do a urine culture, sometimes a swab. So whether it's in the tip of the penis or in the vagina, and it's not as uncomfortable as you would think it is, um, there could be far worse things in your life and, um, and a blood test. That would be the most full comprehensive test. And if you get a sexually transmitted infection or disease, it's a matter of telling your partner, right? So like, if you know who you've had sex with, being open and honest and letting them know like, hey, I just tested positive for whatever it is. I wanna let you know, I would appreciate it if we could keep this between us, right? Cause you wanna be respectful and you would hope that they would too. Mm-hmm. Um, and people talk a lot and it's, and it's a difficult topic. Um, I just remember being in college too. And, um, just being mindful and saying like, Hey, you know, if it is, let's say chlamydia or something, you know, Hey, this is something that I was tested positive for since you and I had sex recently, I would strongly suggest that you go and get tested too. I think you should wait two weeks since the last time that we had sex and then go and get a test for your best, most accurate results and just discuss it with your doctor. And that's all you really can do. I mean, open honesty and transparency is half the battle. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, if you have unprotected sex, how should you protect yourself from like an unexpected pregnancy? Okay. So first and foremost, I want to say like it happens, right? So like a drunk, not drunk night and a night where just like, you know, it's in the moment and it's hot and heavy and you ask somebody and they're like, oh shoot, or the condom gets lost. I mean, there's so many different stories and scenarios. If it happens that sex happens and there's no condom and there's no protection, and there's no birth control, you can go and get plan B. If there's no medical reason why you sh- why you cannot take it, which only you would know, and you should discuss with a medical provider, um, and a pharmacist would be able to ask you those questions as well. But get Plan B and take it as soon as you can after the sexual experience. The sooner you take it, the more effective it can be. However, many times, women, young women who are not on a birth control pill or not on a birth control device will engage in unprotected sex without a condom and then frequent plan B. They -hmm. will use plan B consistently. Plan B is not meant to be used as a consistent form of birth control. It is called emergency contraception for a reason. It is essentially a full month's worth of birth control in one or two small pills. It is Mm -hmm. a lot of hormones. So you want to be really mindful that you're not using that consistently. If you feel like you need to, right, really maybe discussing with your healthcare provider, with your, you know, school's um, health center, with a doctor, with a nurse practitioner, with somebody at pelvic uh, Planned Parenthood, that you want to discuss other options. There are so, thank goodness, there are so many options for safe sex, um, especially for avoiding unwanted pregnancies now. Um, really exploring those options with a healthcare provider is really your best bet. Yeah. And what kinds of birth control are there are out there? That's like, you know, some people just think about the pill, but I know that there's like an IUD, I believe. Uh-huh. Uh, what kind of options are there for women? Sure. There's like an implant in the arm. That, so, so there are a lot of young women who 
have a hard time um, remembering to take a pill every day. So there's Implanon, which is an implant that can go into the arm and be left there with hormones in it to help um, avoid unwanted pregnancy. There's an intrauterine device, which is an IUD. Um, there is a hormonal IUD that has hormones in it that, that stops uh, ovulation from occurring. There's also a copper IUD. And an IUD is placed through the cervix, into the, into the vagina, through the cervix, and into the open, into the uterus. It's a little T-shaped device. And the hormonal one will emit hormones to avoid ovulate, to stop ovulation from occurring so that pregnancy should not occur. Whereas the copper one disrupts, the copper IUD does not have hormones in it. So for individuals with other uh, reproductive or endocrine disorders that might have a difficulty with excess hormones, um, they may utilize a copper IUD so that it doesn't have any hormones being put into the body, but rather disrupts the uterine environment so that if pregnancy were to occur, there's no place for the embryo to implant. Um, and then there's also a NuvaRing, uh, a diaphragm, there's, um, you know, spermicide, there's, um, there are many different options. And they, all these options are really available online. And, and Planned Parenthood Online has all these options as well. Mm. And do you do you have to have insurance to get these things? Or like, if you don't have insurance, does that still work? So I think it really depends on the state you're in, unfortunately, these days. Um, and and what you have access to. A lot of healthcare clinics will be able to give you your options as to what's available based on your healthcare. So if you don't have healthcare, I would strongly suggest don't be afraid of Planned Parenthood. Go ask. They're wonderful. They they just want to help, right? It's 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 a foundation and an organization that really just it's an organization that really just wants to help and provide individuals with an opportunity for safe sex and safe health. Um, and so asking somebody what you're op asking a medical provider or a healthcare clinic, um, what are your options based on what kind of health care you have? Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for that. Um, yeah. So how do you tell your partner or your parents, who, like depending on your age, like that you're pregnant? Like, how do you go about with that conversation? Well, I think that that's, that's, that's a great question. I think it, I think it depends on a lot of different things. It depends on, um, you know, what are you telling them? Why do you want to tell them? Are you planning on keeping the pregnancy? Would yeah, you like to terminate the pregnancy? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, understanding that there might be pushback and pressure um, not that that's correct, but oftentimes there is, especially with unwanted teenage pregnancies. There's this assumption that if a teenager has a child, that their life is ruined um, or over, um, which is not true. It just might be a little bit more difficult to engage in teenage behaviors or, you know, extracurricular activities or educational opportunities when needing to take care of a newborn. Mm -hmm. And that's where they say, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Um, that might be an opportunity where discussing with a family member and saying like, hey, you know, I got pregnant and I would like to keep the baby. And I know that that's going to be difficult. I know that might change my trajectory, but I still have goals and dreams of becoming, you know, a, a doctor or or a person, <laughs> a person. I just want to yeah. be in the world and still have a baby and still be a person. And can you support me? And can you help me? And and understanding that, unfortunately, and I say that so strongly, unfortunately, there's so much shame 
around this and so much discomfort from a lot of families with a lot of youth, but it's still your choice. Mm -hmm. And, and if you choose to terminate, that's also your choice. This also goes the opposite direction Mm -hmm. where somebody might want to terminate a pregnancy and their family's like, no, how could you do that? We don't believe in that. There's a lot of religious um, struggle here with some, with many different religions where people feel like, you know, or if they're pro-choice, I mean, um, you know, pro-life um, and feel like that, that, you know, a woman's choice shouldn't exist and that, and that they should have to just maintain the pregnancy and give birth or give a child up for adoption. I mean, this is a very complicated topic we could probably mm-hmm. talk about for years, yeah. but I think that really just telling someone, and you might not even want to tell your parents. Sometimes you might want to tell the school nurse, yeah, a guidance counselor, right? Uh, um, an older sibling, someone you can confide in, someone who's going to guide you in the right direction and who's going to have your back um, and who's going to help you handle the situation safely. I think that's really who to tell and how you tell them. Yeah. Um how do you deal how do you deal with like sexual assault? Like if you are a victim of sexual assault, what should you do? Absolutely. So if you're a victim of sexual assault, the first thing that I would recommend doing is reporting to a hospital or a healthcare clinic as soon as possible. If it's by I know that that's difficult. Um and it's scary. It's really scary, especially when it's most sexual assaults occur by somebody that we know and that's even scarier. Right. Because Mm -hmm. there's also that trigger of like, what are we going to do when knowing this person? How am I going to face them again? Will anyone believe me? All these different pieces. This is very loaded. First and foremost, you want to go to a healthcare provider to make sure that you have a swab and a kit taken so that it's there for your safety and protection. Also, Mm -hmm. find a mental health provider. If you're on a campus, find a mental health provider. If there's a healthcare clinic nearby, find a mental health provider. Find someone who you can safely and confidentially discuss the situation with and unpack it and process it. Sexual assault and trauma is a very difficult topic to discuss and often leaves people feeling very alone and very scared. And you are not alone. And it is really important that you receive the support and the safety that you so very much deserve. And so going to a healthcare clinic, to a doctor's office, to a hospital, and as soon as possible from the assault and discussing it with someone so that they can take the proper protocols needed medically so that testing can be done and um, you know DNA can be taken if needed, but also discussing it with a mental health provider. And you should know that if you report to a hospital or to a healthcare clinic or to a doctor's office and discuss a, an assault with a medical provider, they will be able to inform you of a mental health provider or a clinic that you can speak to. And they too should be someone that can provide you with support. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, We're wrapping up a bit. Um, I have one last question. Mm -hmm. Um, So someone asked, do you enjoy talking about sex as much as people may believe? About me personally? Yes. Like, do you like, do you enjoy talking about sex as much as, you know, people think, oh, sex therapist, you must like love sex. Like Otis's mom is like, she has sex adorned in her house. Um, is that similar for you? <laughs> You're so funny. So um, 
That's a great question, and I appreciate it very much. So put it this way. Sex to me is something I talk about like chicken fingers and french fries. I'm not uncomfortable by it. I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it has an opportunity to create such connection and warmth and um, freedom between oneself and two people or more. And for me, it's not so, it's not like an obsession of mine. It's just something that I'm not afraid of. It's mm-hmm. something that I am empowered by. And I love that I'm educated, like super overeducated about it in some respects. And there's still so much for me to learn and a lot that I don't understand that I'm still learning. Um, but it's a passion. It's a passion of mine. And so do I have memorabilia in my house of certain things? Yes. Would it, am I looking for a great clitoris, um, a diagram to have in my office? You betcha. Um, do I have a, a, a bell in my house that says ring for sex? You bet. And my toddler does not know, but she rings it every single day. Oh you know, my- there are, There are certain things that for me, I do love talking about sex because I think that if only we could talk about it more in a less taboo way, that we would be less ashamed and more empowered and more supported. Mm -hmm. And in that support and in that empowerment, we'd be engaging in safer, more pleasurable sex because we'd feel less afraid to talk about it. So for that reason, I love talking about sex. Not because I'm some kinky human being, sex therapist person who's having sex off the walls all day long, but because I think that there's a lot of power behind it. And I think that if we could just embrace that power and look at it as a part of humanity, then perhaps we could be engaging a hell of a lot more passion and pleasure. Yeah. Amen. Like you said, sex is human nature and, you know, sex education is, is protection. So, um, Thank you so much, Carly, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing. And please, if I answered, and I want to say this to the listeners, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I only have my experience in the world. If I ever said anything that you'd like to pick apart or talk to me about, feel free to reach out to me at sex.carly on Instagram. You can inbox me. You can shoot me an email at cabtherapy at gmail.com. Or you can visit my website at carlyblau.com. You know, I'm always open to being educated and to understanding and learning and being informed about people and their experiences and what I do not know and cannot identify with. So please, if you feel that there is something I misunderstood or was misinformed about, I welcome and open the door to any conversation and dialogue that will help me become a better version of myself. Yes, please check her out. Thank you listeners for tuning in to Squeamish, the podcast. Stay tuned for more amazing content. Whether it's serious to lighthearted topics, we've got you covered.